I'm kind of having fun with being the CEO, but not being the founder, which maybe that says more to like how I approach the founder job. But like, it's a lot to hold yourself of this sense of like, you got people, you got investors, like everyone to come on this ride. And they're betting on you. And that's a lot to carry every day. So maybe it's just through that, that like when you do it again, it's like you just try to shed as much of that every day as possible so that you manage your own load that you're carrying. Welcome to Fall Line Field Nuts, a podcast exploring the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts. I'm Eric O'Brien. And Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Tiarco Liefer, the CEO of FarmWise, an agricultural technology and robotics company. Tiarco followed an interesting path coming into the role at FarmWise, where he had served previously as an independent board member for three and a half years. As a businessman with an engineering background, we love to talk to him about FarmWise's automated mechanical weeder that uses AI, computer vision, and robotics to pull out weeds and vegetable fields without the use of chemicals. We're thrilled to have this part two of our conversation with Tiarco, exploring the business aspects and engineering considerations, both at FarmWise and in his background as an entrepreneur who's worked at both acquisitions and partnerships. The conversation walks through Tiarco's experiences working as an entrepreneur and having a business acquired and the ways in which technology and agriculture companies develop branding strategies during this process. Leadership, communication, and transparency sit at the center of this concept that he talks about, and he highlights the importance of scalability and distribution partnerships and how he continues to grow as a CEO through executive coaching and network support. Today's continuation jumps off from Tiarco's experience with the integration process of startups into larger organizations. I came to respect a lot of how Monsanto's built and approached its business, but it was kind of like a chemistry company that then became a biotech company that then also became a germplasm company. And so when they bought Climate, they operated as a separate business unit and left a high degree of autonomy to the company, like didn't functionally like integrate it into all the other parts of Monsanto. It's kind of like, no, we bought this company because we also want to become a software technology company. And so that's all the stuff you say like before the merger. They did live up to that. And it was really led from the CEO, Hugh Grant, like really making the success of the acquisition a priority for himself. It's a recurring challenge for ag tech companies, distribution. And so distribution and some proprietary data that Monsanto had, like we unlocked those things. Those were really advantageous. And then the first year or two, there's like honeymoon period and good period. And then like at some point, you know, kind of things start to set in and, you know, well-meaning people in different parts of the organization are like, you know, trying to assert their influence or trying to make things more efficient. I believe in for successful like acquisition, like people are always worried, like, can we retain everybody? And I'm always saying like, no, can you build up like your recruiting and career development such that over like a three, four, five, six year period, you can essentially keep all the knowledge, but also change out a lot of the people. Because the people who are like the right people for like the next stage of that business are often not the same people as for the right people to get it there, right? That I think is a really interesting observation. And it makes a lot of intuitive sense the way you outline it, but it is generally speaking, at least in my observation, not the way acquirers act. It is much more the, okay, what do we have to do to keep these people around yeah, as yeah. opposed to acknowledging this is a natural order of things. Yeah. The same people. That- well, I don't think it's an either or. It's kind of a time frame thing. Like definitely in the first year or two, you want to retain everybody. But it's also, you can't have this like clutching sort of like, we can't succeed if we can't retain onto everybody. I mean, no business will work that way, right? You have turnover all the time because people, you know, they move for other professional opportunities, like whatever. So you can't build an organization that can't sustain turnover. But I think when you go from like a startup 
that's like, you know, three people to 50 people. And then you get acquired and you're like, now you're like a 500 person business unit. Certain people are going to say like, this is wrong for me, right? I loved being the person who got to touch everything when we were a 20 person company. And the crazy thing about startups, and this is like, I think great career advice for young people is like the more successful the startup in some ways for many roles, like the narrower your role becomes, right? And so like, you have to build the organization in order to sustain turning those people over. And what it seems to me you're highlighting too is for acquirers, a strategic competency is around assimilating the IP and the ways of doing things from the group of people that started it while you can hang on to them. And so like building institutional learning right away and that recruiting function to acknowledge that change is inevitable, so get ahead of it. Yeah, like at Climate, I mean, we maintained the employer brand you know, because, you know, in that case, like software engineers, data science, we're not going to go, I mean, Monsanto is like the most, you know, disliked brand in the world, right? And the team there knew it, right? So you have a company that has engineering offices in San Francisco and Seattle and Chicago, you want to hire great engineering talent. But it could be engineering talent that, you know, has personal preferences for more stability or, you know, isn't looking for the equity upside that you might get in a startup with the downside that comes with that, right? So you can still have a great, like, engineering, hiring brand and company culture around that and excellence that's still different than what it was when it was a 20-person independent company. Yeah, that's interesting. And in a similar vein, when we were talking to Sid Gorham, who had run Granular and then got it to be acquired by Corteva. And when they were talking about the transition plan, the thing that he convinced them to do was around, from an incentive perspective, you know, similar to, you know, they didn't have the kind of branding issue, I think, that you identified with Monsanto. But when you think about trying to hire engineering talent into Silicon Valley, equity compensation matters to people and getting equity in what is perceived to be a relatively static, larger company yeah. is not that attractive. Yeah. And so what Sid negotiated with them was to essentially give him a pool of cash that he could provide just hard economic incentives to people to either stick around or to join in lieu of the stock position. So yes, I think you can do those things. I also think like, you know, Google X is like an example of the challenge of creating like the do or die kind of at high upside downside company fails, everyone loses their job to create that within a larger corporation. Like they're just, there's certain things that are nearly impossible, right? And so I totally get, we had these conversations in the climate of like, hey, you know, the Monsanto stock is, you know, what impact is this company, this team that's working on kind of value that's going to be really drive value for the overall organization over a five, 10 year timeframe? What impact does the team have? It's kind of a useless currency for driving incentives. That's totally true. But it's also, I think, a fool's errand to say, like, I'm going to create the same economic incentives that are so important for startups in a massive corporation. It just doesn't work. And what was post-acquisition like at Wellio? It was like, I kind of call it like a mini version of climate. So we ran as an independent business. I reported to the chief growth and innovation officer. We were about a 50-person team. We had our own employer branding around that. And so I advocated for a lot of the successes that what I saw had worked well with the Monsanto acquisition of climate. And that would be my playbook that I would advise people on. I think the big pieces are like, if it's a totally different business, you got to have a different employer brand for it. And then you got to have a focus on a talent pipeline that allows you to substitute people out kind of over a two, three year period. How do you um, 
rationalize that concept of, all right, we're going to make an acquisition and we're going to kind of hold it at arm's length so it can do its thing with a truly strategic acquisition actually brings more than just the independent company value to the equation and actually adds value to the core business. Did you see that happen at Monsanto over time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the two areas were distribution. You know, so with climate, we took what ends up now today called the Climate Field View platform, and it became in Brazil and Canada the largest kind of digital tool for row crop farmers to be connecting their farm equipment, collecting their farming practices, and managing their operations. And like that was all out of Monsanto's distribution capabilities in those countries, right? You know, I think agriculture is given just its geographic dispersion. And for some of the risk fact, kind of risk mindset that exists, and therefore people want to buy and have relationships with people they've worked with before, like all that drives, it's like, it's hard for technology companies in the space to get scalable distribution, right? So I think you can be both, it's like you can be very targeted about where you look for those synergy, as opposed to like the value is going to come because we like get on one like HR management system, right? That is the wrong place to go because that will kill like a separate innovation culture. But you do have to get the synergy, I think, on the distribution side. You also mentioned that in your role at Climate, you reviewed a lot of investment opportunities vis-a-vis Monsanto Growth Ventures, and it sounded like also some acquisitions as well. Yeah, we kind of often went into these conversations like, is this make sense as a venture investment? Or does it make sense as something to add in to the climate product portfolio? And Maybe for the aspiring entrepreneurs out there who see M&A as a potential exit, are there lessons learned from being on that side of the table that are useful for entrepreneurs to keep in mind about what are the criteria that a large strategic or how do they consider deals is, and what is the buy versus invest criteria look like? Yeah. Well, I guess a couple comments I'll make. I mean, one is I would always advise folks to be careful with corporate venture capital groups. It was always amazing to me how different, how much more information would be shared with the corporate venture capital group than would be shared with other parts of the company. And I'm not saying any corporate venture capitalists are being like insincere with companies they talk to. I mean, they're there both to drive generally economic results in their investments, but also to drive strategic value for the company. I just found it, I thought Monsanto was quite good at this. Like, you could have a venture investment conversation, you could have an M&A conversation, or you could have like an R&D partnership conversation, which is really kind of a biotech model that's much more common than it would be as a way to collaborate with software technology companies. But I just thought like it's it's kind of, it was very effective on their part to be able to have those different kinds of relationships with companies. I don't always know if the companies on the other side were as strategic about which kind of conversation it is that they were having or that they wanted to be having. They got sort of slotted as opposed to being an active participant in that slotting exercise. And do you think that the CEOs had more agency in that conversation than they perceived to drive it into a particular lane? I do, right? You can make very clear if that M&A is not something that you're interested in, right? I also think, you know, you have to be quite thoughtful about why a strategic like corporate venture capital investment is the right thing for your business and not get into that by accident. So I guess it's mostly agency by in the sense of like closing doors. I don't think you can make the major corporation do something that's not in their interest, no matter how good of us convincing a salesperson you are. But yeah, oftentimes for companies... Agency comes mostly from like what you pass on. Declare that you're not going to do. Yeah. And 
in companies that may be struggling to raise capital, yeah. one of the classic moves is let's go talk to all the strategics that we're hoping are going to buy yeah. us yeah. now. And let's open with, well, we're looking for strategic investment and then hope that that evolves into an acquisition discussion. Did you see those plays trying to be run against you? And if so, like how transparent does that generally come across? Yeah, I don't know if I saw the exact play of like, we can't raise money. Let's try to like do a venture process, but actually have it be an M&A process. I thought that Monsanto acquiring climate and then us having a bit a corp dev capability within climate that partnered with like Monsanto's corp dev group and venture group a lot. We did about a close to a dozen add-on acquisitions of team, some as teams as small as like three or four people, others larger teams. You never could have had this like 20,000 person company buy a five person company. I mean, they did. They bought companies before they bought climate, but generally it just kind of evaporated within their R&D organization over the next Mm -hmm. year or two. So there was some kind of like clutch process where like we were kind of like the middle layer between this big company that now could acquire smaller companies. That's interesting. I think that, you know, earlier stage companies should be quite wary about like trying to sell themselves, like push a sales process onto strategics. Right. Maybe shifting gears to just kind of leadership philosophy. And we alluded a little bit to culture early on, but as you stepped into the role at FarmWise, what are sort of top of list items for you in terms of priorities around culture creation? And then what, if any, processes or rituals do you have to try to enact that? Yeah, I have a cultural preference for a pretty high degree of transparency both about what the goals are as well as like what the state of the business is and what I believe it needs to achieve. And therefore, I think what like what we all need to be focused on. And then, you know, you got to repeat things like 10 times. So it's mostly about creating that clarity, sharing more information, and then creating the venues in which to share and discuss that. So I think sort of that shared purpose and... Generally, like startups start with like one, two, three founders, right? And it's like everything's held within them, right? And then like, how do you go to having a real leadership team where like you bring people like inside the tent on all like the difficult decisions, like the good and the bad and ugly of like what's going on in the company? I think that is like, that's an important transition that companies need to go through where the circle is enlarged from just the founders. And so that's part of, I think, some change that I've brought to FarmWise is just trying to formalize what our leadership team is and broaden the scope of issues and topics that that group is fully in the loop on. Because my goal with that is to drive a sense of just ownership and accountability to the whole company being successful. Can you give us any examples of particular mechanisms or processes that you put in place to try to cement that set of values and communications? I think it starts with being like open about the financial state of the company. So how much cash do we have? How much are we burning? What's our runway that we have? How often do you communicate that to the team? We're now with the leadership team review, like our monthly actuals versus, you know, budget and look at what a forecast is. So... It's kind of interesting, like when, like an early stage company, like I don't do this to like to try to create like financial acumen for everybody in the business, but it's just to like feel like everyone is, that's the context that's driving decisions. And hopefully they then in their own thinking and decision making can adapt that into their own words and communicate the realities that are important for them about that to their teams. Mm-hmm. And do you have any 
process or mechanism in place to try to close the loop and make sure that that what you are communicating is actually being you know metabolized by the system? Yeah, I mean, I try to have get-togethers with people who are not my direct reports in the company and just hear from them what's going on and understand how they're thinking about decisions they have in front of them. And hopefully you see like echoes of the things you're saying. Do all-hands meetings where there's you know also not the same level of detail shared, but also more transparency than we've had in the past at the company about where things stand, where we need to go, and why. My daughter's a sophomore in college, and I've asked this question of a couple of other guests. You know, if you were giving advice to kids of her generation, you know, kind of late high school and into college right now, there's a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety around, well, I've got to study the thing that's going to get me the job. What advice would you give to kids of this generation about how they should spend their time in the learning environment and think about things from a professional long-term perspective? I guess I would say I feel like there's a lot of like credential chasing, which is like, yeah, go to the right school, get the right degree, learn to like do stuff, try to get real experience, try to figure out what it is that you like doing because you'll have more passion and interest in that. Very rarely do like do you hire someone, especially even for like an entry level role, like where like the degree is like the deciding factor. Yeah, I mean it's hugely important. Like you know where you go to school in the degree. If like what's easy for me to say that, but like if you want to like start your career like Goldman Sachs or like McKinsey, like these things. But I did that right, so it's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe like I'm not the right person to ask because I like underappreciate the advantages that that brings later on. But I think probably my own reflection on it is it was probably too much focus on those kinds of things or too much effort towards things which actually don't really matter. Yeah, they were more signaling than substance. Yeah. I I, I think we share some similarities and backgrounds in that regard. Tiarco, I remember when Seb and Thomas, the founders of FarmWise, first caught wind that you could be interested in the CEO position. They were just giddy with delight. The rest of the board got incredibly enthusiastic, which is all to say, I've never seen a CEO who had such high expectations. Uh, and, uh, but yet you don't look at yourself as somebody who's got all the answers. I, I noticed like you come to the board more with questions than maybe a less experienced CEO. You've got a coach. You really approach this in an open-minded way. I'm curious also if you have kind of a peer network who you go to for, you know, growth and bouncing ideas off, benchmarking yourself. Yes, I do. I mean, I think I've had this interesting sort of reflection on this that like, I feel much less of my own ego wrapped up in FarmWise than I did in Wellio. I'm kind of having fun with being the CEO, but not being the founder, which maybe that says more to like how I approach the founder job. But like, it's a lot to hold yourself of this sense of like, you got people, you got investors, like everyone to come on this ride and they're betting on you. And that's a lot to carry every day. So maybe it's just through that, that like when you do it again, it's like you just try to shed as much of that every day as possible so that you manage your own load that you're carrying. Can you talk a little bit about the value that you get out of CEO coach? Clay and I both have executive coaches. We get tremendous value out of that, but I'm curious sort of how you see the benefit. Yeah, I I think it's just somebody to talk to who can be a reality check on you. I mean, and it's often vocalizing something yourself that you only realize it like what you need to do or what you're thinking. And it's a safe environment for doing that. Michael Lewis, he had a recent podcast series on coaches 
that was really good. I mean, you see this with like executive coaching and like how that's like, it's something that's like spreading to more areas of human performance because people just see like there's a lot of benefits to it, right? And I think it's probably appropriately shed like the stigma of like, oh, you, you know, you're failing. So we need to like bring in a coach to like, no, like you're actually trying to perform at a high level. And so like that athletic parallel is super helpful. Exactly. I think we see that it's so easy to get caught in the automatic zone mm -hmm. of doing what you think you need to do on a daily basis. And it's difficult to level up when you're as busy as I'm sure you are. And having someone helping to hold yourself to a higher set of standards and to look for ways to improve and make sure that the stuff that you're doing daily is mapping to where you said you wanted to go as a company. Well, I think that's the conclusion of I think the questions that we have and the time that we have right now. The hour has flown by. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, Tiarka, before we conclude, any other thoughts that you have for us or our audience of entrepreneurs and farmers out there? Clay, you had brought up like enthusiasm from the founders and for the board for me joining FarmWise full-time. And it wasn't an easy decision personally, just because, you know, I live in San Francisco. The company's headquartered in Santa Clara. Our customers are in Salinas. So it's, I've always been someone who tried to avoid a commute. So it's like a big kind of lifestyle impact to sign up for. But I read this post about good quests and it really resonated for me. Like FarmWise is a good quest. I think a lot of ag tech things are good quests. Like the world will be positively impacted. And like I think like a thing like a business like FarmWise needs to and should be successful. It has all the ingredients to do it and the world will be a better place. That's very rewarding for me to, in a small way, make a sacrifice, if you will, of like, you know, a lifestyle impact of commuting to a longer to a job. But it's for something that I believe is worthwhile to be successful at. Appreciate you sharing that with us, Tiarco. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Fall Line Field Notes. I'm Eric O'Brien. And Clay Mitchell. So we've just spoken with Tiarco Lifer, and in reflection, I think really enjoyable conversation with an experienced CEO who really provided a lot of insight, not only into the company he's currently working with, but with companies that he's worked with in the past, including startups and large companies. I appreciate the perspective that he brings, having been through multiple exit opportunities and then being on the other side within the large company. I thought there were a number of insights that he brought that were unique in our discussions with other CEOs around how big companies think about their interactions with small companies and how small companies ought to think about their interactions with larger strategics. So that I think that hopefully adds some value to folks listening. Yeah, when Tiarco comes to the board for questions, there's a real genuine interest in getting feedback and thinking strategically very deeply with the board. It's something I really appreciate about him. Well, thanks once again for joining us, Fall Line Field Notes. You can find us wherever you download your podcasts or come directly to our website at www.fall-line-capital.com.